This is Chatham House looking at Northeast Asia. There are new leaderships peppered across the region. But before that, we have to start with the elephant in the room, North Korea's weaponry. Particularly on the back of the success of the December 12th rocket launch, North Korea has demonstrated that it has moved forward in terms of its ballistic missile capabilities. We are still, according to most technical analyses, three to five years away from North Korea being able to miniaturize a nuclear warhead and put it on a missile and deploy it. That's the good news. In other words, North Korea is not yet able to marry its ballistic and its nuclear technology. The bad news, of course, is that it appears to be wanting to do more to enhance its capabilities. And no military planner can afford to wait three or four or five years, hence, when that threat becomes a palpable reality. That's John Swenson Wright, a senior consulting fellow in the Asia programme at Chatham House. There is more to regional relations than just North Korea's bombs and missiles, as we'll see. We'll have a look both in South Korea and Japan at the domestic drivers of foreign policy. Then we'll take in the two global players and finally land back in North Korea. But for now, let's build some context. Shinzo Abe is Japan's prime minister again after a few years out of office. His election campaign, remember, was fought while China was making a lot of noise about ownership of the uninhabited islands, known as either Senkaku or Diaoyu. Abe highlighted this, and it played well to the public gallery in Japan. Public opinion has been, I think, increasingly concerned about the sense that Japan's territorial interests have been increasingly challenged by a China that is expanding its maritime presence in the East China Sea, threatening Japan's national interests. A Japan that feels, I think, unconfident about its ability to protect its territory. And the emergence, not just of Mr Abe, but also locally, new politicians who represent a much more outspoken type of nationalism. Now, Mr Abe, I don't think it's fair to describe him as a nationalist as such. Uh, He is very conservative, and I think he probably made a tactical decision during the election campaign to ride the nationalist wave as a means of solidifying his base. And that worked well. So now that he's in power, does he still have to deliver on that? I don't think so, except he has to be careful not to be seen to be opportunistic. And therefore, on some issues, defending Japan's territorial claims to the Sankakus, um, making it clear that, for example, the territorial dispute with South Korea over the island that the Japanese refer to as Takashima and the Koreans refer to as Tokto, that Japan will continue to push its claim for sovereignty over that island. And of course, to the north of Japan, the northern territories, which are uh, disputed territories now occupied by Russia, all of these issues, in a sense, are important bellwethers of the commitment of any politician in Japan to defend the national interest. And Mr Abe will have to be careful to not appear to be resiling from those positions. Indeed, that side of fulfilling the election promises is underway. The Japanese government has just opened a Territorial Sovereignty Office of Planning and Coordination. Back to John. It's always dangerous to to stoke these public expectations because it's then much harder to dampen them. But we've seen with Mr Abe, I think, a willingness to try and send a clear signal by sending envoys to China and Japan that he is committed to Uh, rebuilding those relationships after the fallout from the election. But there's a limit to how far he can do it. And of course, in July, he will face another contest for the upper house where he will probably want to play the same sort of cards again. And Mr Abe is taking on symbolically very important changes, for instance, increasing Japan's defence budget. 
at present, the Constitution, and in particular the legal interpretation of the Constitution, which has been dominant for the last 50 years or so, has meant that Japan's self-defense forces can only really be used in a defensive capacity to protect Japan's territorial interests in conjunction with the United States. Um, Mr. Abe would like to see a Japan that has much more flexibility to deploy regionally and globally and to engage in peacekeeping activities and security activities that involve collaboration with not just the United States, but with other countries. Even before this, it wasn't easy for a Japanese leader to make friendly advances towards North Korea. Public opinion in Japan feels very strongly that North Korea's failure to address the fate of some 30 or perhaps more Japanese citizens who were abducted by North Korean special agents in the 1970s and 80s, that the failure of North Korea to come clean on that issue has meant that no Japanese prime minister, either of the left or the right, has really had much freedom to begin the difficult process of opening up negotiations with North Korea. And there are good practical reasons for Japan and its foreign policy establishment to improve relations with the North, not least because North Korea, of course, represents a massive threat to Japan. But the, the kind of emotional deadlock over the abductees and the sense that Japan doesn't really have much leverage to really put pressure on North Korea, it could offer something. It could offer something very substantial if it were possible to reach a peace agreement. And the model here is the 1965 South Korea-Japan peace treaty. If that were applied in a North Korean context, something comparable, then Japan would be in a position to offer and would need to offer significant financial assistance to the DPRK. And of course, money is what North Korea critically needs, money and aid. And the amount of money that Japan could provide, or would probably provide, if it probably be in the region of five to $10 billion, for the North Korean economy, which is in terms of its, as far as we know, because the statistics are questionable, worth about $28 billion. That's, that's a very sizable shot in the arm. But as I say, there are these domestic obstacles. Let's move on to South Korea. They have some impatience towards Japan. Rationally, South Korea and Japan should be working together to confront the challenge of North Korea. You know, these two countries share a common enemy in North Korea. They share a common ally in the United States. They're increasingly convergent economically. And yet, just like the North Koreans, the South Koreans have this emotional baggage left over from the colonial period. Those rational incentives to cooperate are undercut by a sense of distrust, historical resentment. Japan's experience of 35 years of colonial domination of the Korean peninsula rankles with both South and North Korea. And there's a perception that many of the issues left over from the colonial period have not been sorted out. And the fact that Mr Abe, as a candidate, threatened to, as it were, row back on some of these more emotional issues, in particular the status of the so-called comfort women, those South Korean and North Korean women who were forcibly recruited as sex slaves for the Japanese military in the 1930s, they have not received the sort of compensation and the official acknowledgement of a formal apology that many in Korea feel that Japan needs to offer. Mr Abe has challenged an earlier interpretation from the 1990s that seemed to provide that type of acknowledgement and has said as a candidate that he would revisit that issue. And that has very understandably generated a great deal of anger in South Korea. And let's not forget, there are territorial disputes over islands between Japan and South Korea as well. Since then, we've seen 
President Lee further stoked the flames of anti-Japanese sentiment by deciding in his final year of office to visit Tokto, the first time that a South Korean president has done that publicly. And this was a red rag to a bull in terms of bilateral relations. The Japanese felt it was an unnecessary provocation. And one has to ask, why did he do it? Um, the inside interpretation is that President Lee was keen to secure the support of then Prime Minister Noda to deal with that issue of the comfort women. And basically, the, the Japanese Prime Minister dissed him, essentially said, this is not possible. Now, whether Mr. Noda was unwilling to move because of domestic opinion within Japan or because he simply didn't feel this was a legitimate position, it annoyed President Lee. And the sense of those people who were close to these decisions was that perhaps that sense of annoyance or personal pique encouraged him to take this extra provocation. Some have also argued that it was a way of strengthening his legitimacy in the eyes of a South Korean public that was increasingly critical of President Lee. Um, but it hasn't helped the bilateral relationship. Of course, the South Koreans themselves have powerful reasons to be concerned about North Korea. Many more South Koreans, for example, have been forcibly abducted to the North. The issues that the Japanese feel are so important to, I think, the average man or woman in the South Korean street don't seem that big. They don't have that emotional resonance. Um, and I think there is also an impatience with Japan. In a sense, the one issue that unites North and South Korea the territorial issue and the legacy of the war. You know, both Pyongyang and Seoul are on the same page when it comes to defending their claim over Tokto. And in that sense, it's a wedge issue that can drive South Korea apart from Japan and reinforces North Korea's criticism of Japan. Let's look to the superpowers. The US has a new Secretary of State, John Kerry, just in the job, and no signs of change in Northeast Asia yet. The Obama administration's so-called pivot to Asia is a reassuring demonstration of the prominence that the Obama presidency is giving to Asia. And that's a welcome point of reassurance. I think there is a sense in Washington that the election of Mr. Abe was uh, a source of reassurance. So too, the election of Park Geun-hye, who will take office as president on February 25th, was also a source of reassurance reinforcing a strong alliance relationship. So we have two two really important alliance relationships, the most important alliance relationships for the United States in the region, being underpinned by conservative leaders who recognize the importance of security cooperation. But the disputes and election rhetoric haven't gone unnoticed in Washington, D.C. Where U.S.-Japan relations are concerned, there is a great sense of anxiety that the territorial issue that divides China from Japan, the Senkaku issue, is a potential flashpoint that could spiral out of control. The United States has a formal commitment to protect Japan's sovereign territory if it is threatened, and a security alliance and a security treaty with Japan that requires the United States to come to the aid of Japan if its territorial interests are threatened. Washington takes a neutral position on the sovereignty claims. Therefore, it does not want to be called on this issue. And of course, the last thing it wants is a new hot war in East Asia. And the growing kind of drumbeat of more combative rhetoric and the increasing willingness of China to push the envelope in terms of testing Japan's maritime and now increasingly its air defences in that region is a source of great concern not just to Japanese defence plans, but also to their US counterparts. So there is a desire on the part of Washington to lower tensions when it comes to Sino-Japan relations. 
A more assertive leadership in Japan can be assumed to be more independent, less beholden to the United States. Same is true in South Korea. Park Geun-hye is keen to reinforce her relationship with the United States, but at the same time has also made it clear that South Korea's relationship with China is also very important. Park Geun-hye herself speaks Chinese. Under President Lee, she was appointed as a special envoy to China. South Korea and China have a growing economic relationship. The, in a sense, centripetal forces that are pulling South Korea and China closer together in the field of trade and investment and increasingly also education, as well as the strategic importance of China in managing or attempting to manage the challenge of North Korea, means that Seoul has a powerful incentive to move closer to China. It's a non-zero-sum situation, in other words. It can maintain its close relationship with the United States, but also reach out to China. If or when North Korea tests a third nuclear device, the US and China will both have something to say. It's important for Washington to be able to demonstrate that there are consequences if North Korea tests. And here, interestingly, I think we may be seeing a growing convergence of awareness between not only the United States, Japan and South Korea on the one hand, but also increasingly China, beginning to sound publicly much more irritated with Pyongyang, uh, sending signals that there will be consequences, probably economic consequences. China provides you know, somewhere in the region of 70% of North Korea's food and energy resources. China could, if it was minded to, turn the screw in a way that would exert real pain on Pyongyang. And they've done it in the past. They did it in 2006, albeit in a way that was finessed to appear as a simple technocratic change. The oil suddenly stopped flowing temporarily. Now, you can view that as um, a glitch in communications. But I think most observers recognize that Beijing was attempting to send a relatively subtle signal to the North Koreans that they need to be more responsible. Here we are, Seven years on, a much more acute security situation and a type of test which is being seen by all the states in the region as particularly provocative. North Korea and provocative seem to be words that go together. There's no doubt that in conjunction with uh, the Pakistanis and others, the North Koreans have been trying to develop and enhance their missile, ballistic missile capability and they clearly have the capability to hit South Korea with devastating effectiveness their short and medium-range missiles could be deployed, and those missile batteries that are aimed at Seoul would undoubtedly have a huge impact. But of course, it would be the equivalent of pushing all of your strategic and tactical assets into the pot and using them at one full swoop. And of course, the consequence of doing that would be instant and devastating retaliation from both South Korea and the United States and also from Japan. And the North Korean leadership must know that, and therefore... It's a moot question whether, in fact, the North Koreans would be willing to take that that risk, and I think it's unlikely. North Korea is poor, so why do they spend so much on missile and nuclear development? Bear in mind that the December 12th test was the first successful test in a long time. The previous four tests were all failures. And therefore, many people, I think, see this type of saber-rattling as having more of a political than a strategic value. The purposes of testing these missiles is to enhance the reputational status of the North Korean leadership, of demonstrating that North Korea is both a prosperous and a strong nation, in the words that we use to describe the state in 2012, mm-hmm. and also 
to keep the spotlight of the international community firmly fixed on Pyongyang. What the North Koreans hate is being ignored and they're past masters at generating international attention, as we've seen over the last few days. So one can understand the political logic behind this. So what about another approach? If one thinks counterintuitively, there's a different way in which perhaps the international community could engage with North Korea, which is to actually be less alarmist, be less concerned about these steps that they're taking to provoke. Um, Take, for example, the question of North Korea's ballistic missile capabilities. If it's true, as some analysts argue, that they have a limited stockpile of effective missiles, then the idea of imposing a moratorium of requiring North Korea not to test these missiles might be actually uh, an approach that we could reconsider. Maybe it would be better to actually encourage North Korea to go ahead and test with impunity and use up its stockpile. Um, I don't think the international community is ever going to embrace that sort of approach, but I think it reflects the ambiguity about what these missiles are actually intended to achieve. If you want to test a missile effectively, you have to not only be able to deploy it, but you have to pick up the debris and identify where it lands. North Korea tests into the waters surrounding it, and therefore is not in a position to do just that. So the technical telemetry information that comes back from these tests is perhaps not something that the North Koreans have easy access to. So we can take some reassurance. The more worrying threat, of course, of North Korea is not so much the immediate strategic challenge that a nuclear North Korea poses to its neighbours, that sort of existential threat, because the risks associated with using it are so high that it doesn't seem rationally plausible to assume that the North would use it. But the bigger worry, the worry of A, proliferation. North Korea has powerful economic incentives to sell this technology to the highest bidder on the international market. And if one looks at its missile program, that perhaps provides a more immediately plausible reason for why the North has invested so heavily in this technology, because it can sell it. And it's engaged in missile sales to Syria, to Iran, to Myanmar, uh, to Yemen. That role, of course, of selling this material on the international market is a source of concern. And then the next question, of course, is the nuclear program. Would the North be really willing to risk selling its, as far as we can tell, relatively limited nuclear assets to another state or to a terrorist organization, especially if it were possible to trace the paper trail back to Pyongyang and run the risk of the United States retaliating in a very decisive and immediate fashion? I'm not sure. Um, But the more we tighten the economic screws around North Korea, the more, of course, the incentive is to do just that. And then the third risk that North Korea poses is, of course, the risk of instability, the risk that the Chinese government is so concerned about. And on the nuclear side, there's a risk of unintended proliferation. A North Korean state which has maybe enough fissile material to produce six to eight conventional plutonium nuclear weapons, and perhaps, as we're now starting to worry, an HEU program that might produce additional amounts of fissile material. A North Korean state that collapses and the center of political control disappears is a North Korea where this material could dissipate in ways that the international community simply can't regulate. And that's, of course, another source of concern. So not intentional proliferation, but proliferation by accident rather than design. John Swenson Wright is a senior consulting fellow at Chatham House's Asia programme. Hear and read more from him at chathamhouse.org.